Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. back everyone to the podcast for cultural reformation and actually i'm your host for today unusual time for a change mm-hmm. um uh, my name we'll is try anything uh, around here well, they'll let anybody in this room <laughs> gonna get you to pull your weight here <laughs> <laughs> so i'm sure most of you are aware by now i'm dr joe boot and i'm joined in the studio as always or uh, as typical by ryan eras and nathan oblack and uh, we've got a special guest joining us today all the way from the United Kingdom, and we're mm-hmm. going to introduce him in just a moment. We have a very exciting episode for you today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get into that and into the details of the show, Nathan, why don't you just um, give us the updates sure. and uh, heads up that we need for yep. uh, the coming months? Yeah, great. Well, uh, we've been mentioning this on the show for several weeks now, but the Mission of God conference is coming up uh here in the Niagara region on Saturday, May 21st. And uh, our focus this year is on the topic of utopianism. And we've mentioned this as well. Uh, One of our speakers is, in fact, Graham Leach, who's joining us on the podcast today. So we're very excited to have Graham join us, and Joe will be introducing him in a moment. But uh, we've also just announced on our social media last week that we have a Mission of God Conference West happening in Edmonton, Alberta, Mm -hmm. on Saturday, May the 18th. And uh, Joe's going to be speaking at that conference as well, Andre Schutten, and we have Andrew Sandlin joining us for that event. From California. From California, that's right. And we love, we love California. (laughs) We do. A wonderful state, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find find more information on both of those conferences on our website at EzraInstitute.com. And uh, while you're there on our website, uh, be sure to subscribe to our monthly resource email, And uh, when you subscribe to that email, you get uh, a monthly look at our top resources uh, from the previous month, and you'll get updates to the work of our ministry. um, And that would include uh, the detail, increasingly include the details of our expansion into the United Kingdom and the United States. So if you want more information on how that process is going forward, be sure to subscribe. And you could do that if you go to our homepage, just scroll down to the bottom, and uh, you'll see our contact form. And that's uh, give us your give us your contact information. We'll be sure to send you that monthly resource email. And just finally, uh, the H. Evan Runner International Academy is coming up June fifth to the fifteenth, and we do still have some bursaries uh, for the program. Joe, how, how many? There's several left. I think we have six bursaries or right. f- five or six bursaries right, left. That's right, and would... that's about as many spots as we have left in the yeah, program. Yeah, that's as all. Well. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, somebody has very generously made uh, 50% bursaries available, right. Right. five additional 50% bursaries. So right. if people are interested in the program, um, they may not get a better opportunity than this. That's right. So, yeah. So again, if you want more information on the program or anything I've mentioned, EzraInstitute.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, well, let's, uh, because we have um, uh, a certain amount of, um, well, a li- little bit limited on our time uh, for this episode because we've got such a high flyer joining us That's from right. um, the United Kingdom. Our fellow for biblical economics is Graham Leach, a wonderful friend of mine now for many years. He's also uh, joining the board of uh, Ezra Institute UK, which is coming soon. So we've got to mind our P's and Q's as well today as we <laughs> oh, yeah. as, as, as we interview Graham. Um, you put on a new shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Graham is actually um, a leading economist um, and uh, chief economist, CEO for Macronomics. He's former chief economist and director of policy at the Institute of Directors, where he represented the IOD in economic discussions with the Chancellor and 10 Downing Street. So now don't blame him for the economic situation right now in the West or in Britain. Um, Yeah, yeah, all Graham can do is advise. (laughs) (laughs) He's not responsible for the decisions. He's just advising people. So um, advisors advise, ministers decide. That's right. 
So, Graham, um, all joking aside, it's a real blessing to have you on the show today. A real privilege for us to, to, to have you as a fellow of the Institute. Looking forward to working more closely together in the months and years ahead as well um, in the United Kingdom as we move forward with our plans for our uh, expansion there. And um, today, because you are a key keynote speaker at our uh, Mission of God conference in May, and many of our listeners will not be familiar with you, uh, we thought uh, we want you on the podcast. We're going to want to talk some economics, um, uh, talk a bit about uh, what you'll be addressing at the conference and, and what are the things that we can be doing today as believers in this whole sphere of life. So, Graham, why don't we kick off by um, just telling us a little bit, telling uh, our audience a little bit about yourself and your work. And, um, and then... Uh, just uh, give us a glimpse into uh, the the theme you'll be addressing in at the Mission of God conference in May. Sure. Well, thank you, Joe, for inviting me on. Um, it's great to be involved with you guys, um, and I'm really looking forward to the kind of forward plan of what we're going to be doing together over the coming years. I mean, in terms of my kind of background, well, I guess I'm your portfolio man now in economics because although I still dabble with economic policy analysis and forecasting the economy in my business uh, with my business hat on. I'm also lecturing um, uh, on economic policy at um, Cardiff Business School in the UK and the University of Lincoln in the UK as well. And then the third strand, and probably the most important one, is really just trying to work on a Christian front, trying to advance a biblical economic worldview because, boy, do we need one because even among Christian economists, I would argue, they far too often bring their kind of politics um, to their Bible as opposed to their Bible to their, their economics and politics. And um, and it's so important because that that is where the problem is because it's a, it's a bit like the history of philosophy, trying to kind of explain reality without reference to God. And that's very much that... Um, uh, the case in economics. Um, the British economist John Maynard Keynes um, used to say that um, kind of everybody is uh, is subject to some defunct uh, um, economist. Every politician or every businessman is subject to a defunct economist. And I would say every economist is subject to some defunct philosopher at root. It all goes back to your worldview and how that worldview is obtained and the way that is shaped and I'm afraid if it's shaped by autonomous human thinking um, as opposed to revelation in scripture, then you're going to have a problem. Um, and um, it's it's a huge problem now. And it's a huge problem for the church because basically Christians are kind of don't think the Bible speaks to economics. Or if they do, it's only for some agrarian economy thousands of years ago it's not the present day modern advanced economy and um well i'm sorry it, it does speak to the day and it speaks very clearly actually it, but it doesn't if you don't let it but it does if you do yeah so uh graham in in uh, in light of that this is one of the reasons we wanted uh, you as a keynote at this year's mission of god because we know that this is a terribly neglected area the overall theme for the mission of god conference this year is uh, the kingdom of god versus utopia or utopia versus the the kingdom of god and um this captivity of of economics to um anti-christian philosophy and worldview uh is as you say a, a major problem amongst christians it's a major problem in the church most people are thoroughly unaware of it just give us a quick glimpse into your uh uh, overall theme for Mission of God uh, 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 this year is uh, what what um, what might people expect in general you to be explaining to them? Um, probably some quite radical stuff. Um, not be not because it's unbiblical, but because received wisdom and understanding, even within the church. <laughs> is very often um, far from where the, where the Bible is on on economic things, and we start off, you know, with with the word utopia. That that is a word where that is a state uh, of nature, a state of man, which we are not going to achieve this side of heaven. 
And um, and so the very act of trying to achieve utopia shows that in a, in a fallen world, man's moved beyond God and he's trying to come up with his own solutions. So we're back to the same old problem. It's it's autonomous thinking by man. And that's the key, the key issue here. We, you are not going to achieve utopianism on um, on earth in a fallen world. You can't do it. Fallen man won't let you do it. Um, fallen people, whether in the church or outside the church, it means that you you can't achieve perfection. So utopia is out of reach, full, full stop, right from the beginning. Um, and so kind of economics 101 is we're not going to get there, but, and it's a huge but, and, but if we obey God's rules, we'll still do better than the alternative. In other words, God's plan for the economy, even in a fallen world, works better than all the secular man-made alternatives. So if you think about communism, socialism, interventionism, all sorts and forms, then it's not going to work. Um, but man doesn't recognise that. Um, generation after generation after generation, we fight the same old battles, which is to say that there's the rise of statism never goes away. Since the, the birth of capitalism, capitalism came about because for the first time in economic history or first time since the Old Testament and the time of Moses and Deuteronomy and Torah economics, the first time any kind of genuinely free market approach to the economy, and it's still very limited, but the first time it was truly introduced in the, was two or 300 years ago. So you had it a little bit during the Promised Land, it wasn't the land of milk and honey in an economic sense. It wasn't perfect, but it was better than else going on, going on all around. Then it was basically lost. Um, and it took over thousands of years for freedom for all the reasons um, we could discuss for, 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 for ages, which we won't. But freedom and other factors associated with property rights and all these things eventually came together so that two or three hundred years ago, there was the birth of capitalism, and there was something close to free markets, which had never been before, because there was, it was it was a feudal economy, or there was mercantilism, or there was basically the arbitrary seizing of land and property. So there weren't wasn't assured property rights. These problems, which had been there for so long, were just limited, and so it was almost as if mankind, for the first time rediscovered his creativity for the first time you know since the garden of eden almost that god's creative hand was exhibited and encouraged and we got the innovation and we got freedom and we got the birth of capitalism now there were little elements of that previously you know the 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 monasteries in the middle ages had a pseudo-capitalist model and then you had in the northern italian city-states the venice and others genoa Florence, you had the birth of capitalism a little bit there, but it was lost. It was lost because of a loss of freedom and, and other factors associated with property rights and statism. And and so just when we got there, so this wasn't the perfect economy, but so we were never going to get the utopian dream. But just when we touched, it was almost as if, you know, when God passed by Moses. It was almost as if we touched the hind quarters of God's economy. And then in that moment, we got growth for the first time in history. You know, you look at a history of economic growth, and what is it? It's a flat curve forever. And then it just goes exponential 200 years ago, just over. And people say, What happened? What happened? Well, God happened. God happened for the first time, not in a perfect sense, not in the utopian sense. But we just did a bit of what his model teaches us to do, and look what happened. Hang on a look minute, well, Graham. Hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on here. Are you telling me that there are creational norms or laws for economic life, and that economics isn't just a neutral sphere? I didn't. Isn't it the case, Ryan, that um, economics is just another one of these? You know, economic policy is just a neutral thing the state does. It's just sort of neutral processes there's no ideology behind it is it there's uh, there are natural laws i've heard <laughs> embedded in creation that uh, graham's just described we've been you know operating in them for thousands of years except under the nation of israel yeah for a period so so graham i mean 
there's, 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 there's a couple of things here and, and it brings us on, I think, to wh where you can uh, h help us go further. You said a number of very interesting things there that I think we can unpack a little bit. Mm. But um, from our reformational perspective, there is a law for, a creational law for economic life. And because of sin and rebellion, human beings are always pushing back. They're trying to overturn God's order. So just as we're trying to overturn God's order in the area of human identity and sexuality, we're trying to overturn yeah. God's order in the realm of economics. And so mm -hmm. instead of being thetical, we're antithetical yeah. to God's normative structure. And so God republishes his law. Uh, in, in It's inscripturated. And of course, you said, I love that image of... Uh, you know the, of Moses, and a glimpse there of economic freedom, and then and then and then touching just the back of God's uh, economic model. Everything you've said immediately throws this huge grenade into mm -hmm. the middle of any gathering of Christians, mm -hmm. which is that there is actually a Christian way to think about economics. The economic policy isn't neutral. Economic policy isn't just a function of um, a pure pragmatics. It's not just this, well, you know, two plus two equals four for everybody. There is actually a way to think about economic life um, and economic resources and prosperity in a distinctly Christian way. Um, you know, in the commandments, we've got you shall not steal. Uh, you talked about the seizure of land. And, um, of course, you shall not covet. So there's the whole issue of uh, the heart and the issue of, you know, covetousness and you know, if ever we lived in a, an economy of sort of larceny, of larceny in people's hearts, we, we, we live in such an economy now, or at least larceny is making a major comeback. Um, but why don't you just um, summarize for us? You've highlighted some of the problems. Could you give us, some, give us a bit of a summary of this Christian economic worldview? Just a 10,000-foot just a view. We know you can't get into all the details, but a biblical economic worldview – and maybe start, uh, at least for us, with this notion, you know, right there in the Decalogue, you shall not steal. One of the fundamentals mm. of, uh, of free market economics, of uh, the foundations of prosperity, is security of property. If we cannot be sure, if we cannot be confident that we can securely own property, how can we ever prosper? Yeah. No, no cultures that, that don't have security of property personal private property or family property uh, cannot prosper. And that seems to me at the foundation, you shall not steal, is at the foundation of God's economic model with just weights and measures. So why don't you give us a, a bit of a 10,000 foot summary of when you, when you say to us, you know, touching the back there of just, we just touched God's economic model and then it went by. Give, it, give us a bit more insight into that. Sure. I mean, can I just kind of, maybe preamble that just by saying that you know we think economics or we in a world sense we think it is very much a sort of man-made discipline it's um or it's an intellectual pursuit maybe or an academic pursuit but actually at root it's a spiritual one this is all a spiritual battle at root um because one uh, what i'll come on to is arguing that you know the free market is god's market but that's the point that's why people oppose it that's why it's it, it, that's why there's this permanent um, seat of opposition um, to capitalism and the free market. It's it's because it's God market, it's God's market, and that's why people oppose it. And the in the fallen world, people think that oh, um, th this you know it's a it's it's a chaotic Darwinian survival of the fittest, and so you've got to intervene to stop this. It's not a chaotic Darwinian survival of the fittest. There, 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 there is order out there, um, and um, it's uh, it's it's something that uh, is is so basic and so foundational. But actually, the economic battle is at root a spiritual battle. It is an intellectual one, but it is at root a, a, a spiritual battle, and. Um, and the free market, if the free market is God's model, then it's not surprising lots of people oppose it because people want to, to um, uh, get on the other side of the, of the fence, as it were. So in terms of the actual biblical economic model, what is it? Well, first point is, yes, I, I do think the Bible speaks to it, uh, a bit a, a model. Uh, the, yes, it does. It, 
it speaks in broad terms. It doesn't speak in terms of very detailed uh, um, biblical modeling. But what it says is so profound and so foundational that actually we we really we almost don't need much more. We, we almost don't need the detail. Um, it, it's it's clear enough. I would argue. Um, I would argue there is a sort of economic trinity in the in the in the Old Testament, which comes through in the New Testament as well. Um, and it's very simple, and it and it it limits the state. Now, um, what do what do I mean by the economic trinity? What are the key characteristics of that? Well, I argue there are three. One is you've touched on it already. One is the absolute nature of property rights, and we'll come back to that in a minute. The other is proportional taxation, not progressive taxation, and the third one is the voluntary nature of welfare. In other words, not state welfareism. Um, and those three things together powerfully come together. Now, they're clearly set out in Scripture. Um, and so um, there isn't a controversy in there. It's, people will say, it's, but, you know, but it doesn't necessarily apply today. Well, I would argue it's so foundational and so clear in Scripture that they do still apply uh, today. And it's not some kind of rule which was only appropriate um, thousands of years ago. Let me unpack that a little bit on on property rights first. Property rights, um, uh, Joe, you said just said, thou shalt not steal. But actually, um, we've got two commandments, actually, after property rights. The other one, thou shalt not covet. So there are two, so they, so God gives two pretty powerful warnings there um, to show that He actually has got a bit of a thing about property rights, and He thinks it's important. And it's not, and in an economic sense, it's very important for the reasons you alluded to. Where you don't have property rights assured, Zimbabwe, for example, then you get a mess in an economy because who's going to put money in if you're not even sure at all? You're ever going to get any money out of it. And so it absolutely wrecks economy. And um, there's a, there are interesting data um, from Hernando de Soto, uh, the, who's done a lot of work looking at property rights in the developing world. And he basically shows very powerfully that really a lot of the lack of growth in the developing world is because of a lack of property rights or the assurance of those property rights. And even in more advanced economies, even in to the present day, lack of assurance of property rights is terrible and it wrecks them. Look at the Russian economy. The Russian economy, yes, it's not the, the basket case it was back in the days of the USSR. When I spoke at, uh, in Russia I, back in 1989, before the collapse of communism, and I went to a dinner and I sat next to a KGB colonel who raised a toast to the Soviet Union, the worst run country on earth. And so and I knew that I knew communism was going to collapse when the KGB had twigged that. Uh, but actually what they haven't twigged is in the, in the KGB crony kleptocracy that is now the Russian economy, um, property rights aren't assured. Putin can grab it or one of his mates can grab a company off you. Um, very easily, so there's no assurance, and so we have a, 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 an economy which has never really prospered. It's a darn sight better than it was under communism, but it's still not prospered to reach its potential because of a lack of property rights. So property rights absolutely foundational. If you don't get them right, you don't get any growth. And for thousands of years, we didn't get it right. You know, the, even after Magna Carta in the UK, um, there was for hundreds and hundreds of years. Although there was common law, there was some assurance of property rights, the king could still do what he wanted. And so, again, it was only around the, it was only post Reformation with the rise of the individual rights and the rise of property rights that really embedded that in society. And, um, and that was foundational to growth. Second one, clearly, there's an emphasis in the Bible on proportional, not progressive taxation. That still means the rich pay more than the poor, but they pay a fair share. And God seems to think that's fair as well. So if he, if he points towards a 10% tithe, um, then there's a, there's a proportionality principle. And of course, why is that important economically? That's because taxes distort uh, and, um, and taxes distort um, economic incentives, the incentive to work, save and invest. And they can, uh, and that, 
and which is magnified at the distortion. Um, uh, the higher the tax rate, the greater the distortion, but it's on a sort of multiplier effect. It's on, um, and it's raised to the power. It's not just an additional effect. And so there's great, there is real distortion to the incentive to work, save, and invest with um, steep progressive tax rates. So, Graham, um, just so on that, only- um, just let me cut in there just to get you to clarify on that because you've mentioned um, – You've mentioned the Soviet Union. You mentioned Zimbabwe. Of course, you and I are both aware that um, the this is a major problem in the Western economies as well. Less less so in the United States, but in Britain, we've got perhaps the most iniquitous of all ta- taxes: inheritance tax, um, which is p- progressive and and is stripping the family of its wealth. So you can't uh, pass wealth down to your children in the same way very often if if your estate attracts inheritance taxes the estate has to be sold just to pay them you've got stamp duty part the american revolution was fought over the king trying to impose stamp duty on the on the colonists and the stamp duty on 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 homes in the uk over nine hundred and fifty thousand pounds is astonishing it's it's at like 10 percent. again it's progressive you don't pay any stamp duty on a house under I think about two hundred or two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and then you've got the council taxes, and I'm highlighting these because these seem to be all taxes on property, which seems to link point one and two that you've made. You've talked about property rights, and then point two of your trinity here is proportional, not progressive taxation. This is without even talking about income, progressive income taxes, and all the other hidden taxes in our economy. This is just the stuff targeted at property that seems to have the effect of this radical distorting effect that you're talking about. Can you can you comment on that at all? Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, these um, uh, inheritance tax, as far as I can see, uh, has no biblical basis whatsoever. You know, Bible tells us to pass on a, an inheritance, you know, f- for subsequent generations. And, um, and, 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 and if the state's taking that, it's... It, it, it's just wrong, but it goes to back to the absolute nature of property rights. If there is an abs, if there is an absolute rule, well, when I say absolute, it's not one hundred percent absolute. So there is a justification for a form of taxation to cover the legitimate functions of government, but the legitimate functions of government, as set out in Romans thirteen, for example, are not are not the limits on government which prevail today. And and if what you've got is a, what you've got there is a is a government dedicated to law and order and justice and to doing good in that sense, and so but law and order and justice and defence you add those up together that's about in the UK now two or three percent of GDP on, on each of them max. So you know whereas state spending in the UK is well north of forty percent and was north of fifty percent at the t- at the peak of COVID. Um, so you know the, so and of course in other Western economies in the Nordic economies um, the state is even bigger still and and in France for example I mean interestingly actually the Nordics everybody said well why do the Nordics have, have they grown quite well in the last twenty years well part of the reason is. They went from gargantuan states. For example, Sweden had 70% of GDP for public spending, felt that's fallen to 50%. So they're still too high, um, but they're just a lot better than they were. They were. And again, going back to that point, you know, you shrank the state, you got a bit closer to God's hind quarters as he passed Moses. Not, not very close, but you got a little bit closer and you got the blessing as well uh, as a consequence. So the, the, the the size of the state, I mean, you said it's not as high in the US. Well, the US to me doesn't look that much of a free economy compared to what it used to be. And you're going to pay that price. And, and um, you look at, for example, the Heritage Foundation in the, in, in uh, the indices of economic freedom. Over the last decade, the US has progressively slid down um, uh, that, that table. And guess what? You, you'll pay a price for that. Because the Heritage Foundation, um, and uh, I've, I'm writing a book at the moment, and it's got a, I've nabbed one of its charts because it's so powerful, and just shows the clear tra- trade-off between um, freedom and growth, and the, the, the freer the economy, 
the faster it's grown and the higher is per capita incomes in those. Now, that's not to say that freedom is perfect and capitalism is beautiful and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, there's an old saying that, you know, the, the less Christian worldview permeates society, then the more the uglier capitalism will become. And you will get excess and greed. But hey, you'll get excess and greed in any system. And, and that's the problem, of course. It's not the system um, that's broken. It's not the system which is fallen. It's fallen people who won't operate God's rules for the system. In the well, that's maybe a good a good moment to, to sort of mention the difference between a laissez-faire capitalism with the emphasis on the ism there where the sole uh, priority is capital and free markets that are that are actually driven by much more than pure self-interest but actually it's about mutual uh relationships there and that's the idea of a free market is that we're actually uh, serving one another everyone's benefiting i think the modern the modern sort of interventionist capitalism where the state is perpetually intervening are not really free markets and uh you mentioned, Graham, you know, the, the size of, and we'll come on to your third point here in just a second, but the size of the state that you mentioned growing and, you know, in the United States and, and in the Western countries. Um, and that's tied, of course, to state debt, isn't it? Because the more the state tries to do and claims to do in these three areas, uh, in seizing control uh, and trying to run all of these different areas and, and so that you've got... Um, a decline in property rights and uh, progressive taxation, and then, of course, this area of welfare. The state spends more and more, and then it starts borrowing more and more. And so we've got these incredible debt levels. What, 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 what uh, just to just touch on that for a second about, you know, the, this, how, how debt, and especially state debt, then affects economic freedom. Well, I think one of the defining characteristics of the last 20 years has been just the explosion in debt. Um, first, there was a step up in the wake of the financial crisis. And you'll remember then the huge stimulus packages which went through then, which were absolutely gargantuan compared with anything that had gone before. And then, of course, we had COVID coming a decade later and another round of gargantuan stimulus and fiscal explosion. And um, that that means that debt-to-GDP levels have risen enormously over that period of time. Um, and why is that a problem? I'm so sure. I mean, so GDP is the total size of the economy. So, the, the, so the, 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 one of the simple things which has happened over recent decades is that um, the, the share of public debt is as a ratio to GDP has risen massively, first in the wake of the financial crisis and then, as I say, in the wake of COVID. Um, and that's a problem. It would be, it's a problem because some people might say, oh, hey, that's happened before. Look at the First World War, the Second World War. Yeah, that did happen. And afterwards, progressively over time, the debt to GDP ratios fell quite substantially. But that required very strong growth. Um, and, you know, we had very strong growth in the 1950s and 1960s, let's say, after the Second World War. What we're seeing now, though, is a problem that actually growth has slowed quite sharply. I'll come back to that in a second. But actually, in the future, growth has slowed. But in the future, on top of that, we've got an aging population. And we've got a political class which now wants to throw money at every problem. That used to be a kind of an issue on the left, that the left's economic solution was to throw money at the, at the problem. But now it's, it spans the, the, the political spectrum. In the UK now, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, he, if there's a problem, he'll chuck money at it. Um, and, um, and that, and what, so we've got a, a political class which, whose now default mechanism is spend, whatever the problem. What if, and, and then on top of that, we've got an aging population, which is going to add an enormous pressure to public spending in the long term for Medicare, pensions, social care, all those things. Um, and at the same time, um, if, if you doubted the politicians were going to spend it, then it would remind you that the, the over 50 plus population is going to come to dominate the electorate over the coming decades 
And so their political influence is going to accelerate and intensify. And so they're going to spend, the politicians are going to spend. And so you've got all, so you've got future spending levels, which are going to be even higher. And they're not going to raise taxes. Taxes in the UK are the highest in the post-war um, uh, era. Um, so in, as a proportion of the overall size of the economy. So if they're not going to raise taxes, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to raise borrowing, aren't they? And if you, and actually, if you look in the UK, um, I come to the US, for example, in the same, but if you look in the UK, then the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is an independent assessor of the fiscal outlook, it, it just there is an explosion in public sector debt uh, mid-century in the UK, like, unless policies change, exploding towards 2 or 300%. In other words, three times the level it is now, and it's already too high. For the US, the unfunded liabilities of the US system, Medicare and Medicaid, for example, have been estimated... Uh, there's a U.S. economist, Lawrence Kotlikoff, who's written widely on it. On Kotlikoff's estimates, the unf- so the total size of the U.S. economy is around $20 trillion. And um, roughly that's where the kind of public debt is now. The unfunded uh, liabilities of the U.S. government are around $200 trillion. Now, is are, are we ever going to reach that? No, they're never going to reach that. Financial markets will absolutely kill that way long before. But it means we're in an unsustainable situation. And why are we doing that? Because we've not obeyed God's rules in the first place. Yeah. Well, why don't we come then to um, uh, your third point in this, uh, this, this, this very helpful trinity, property rights, proportional, not progressive taxation, so absolute property rights, and then this area of voluntary welfare, because that probably ties in nicely to this problem of the the issue of the size of the state mm-hmm. and uh, all these unfunded uh, liabilities. Yeah, well, I, I, the first point, and this, this is the most important one, is uh, is that, you know, um, 2 Corinthians 8.8, 8, you know, uh, basically that the most must be love, not compulsion. Um, and um, that, is, that is the foundational principle there, that God wants it to be done out of love. We're not to pass by on the other side. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that the Bible speaks to God's love from the heart for the poor over and over and over again. So when I talk about a smaller state and when I talk about, as a result, a smaller tax burden any because you just don't need to fund as much, that's not so you can go off and buy a Ferrari. Um, it, it is so... One, I think God wants you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. The worker deserves his wages. So um, I think he wants, but he also wants you to be able to, you know, show to love your neighbor. And that, that, and that love aspect, I think is so, so, so important because there's not much love in a bureaucracy, isn't there? You're a number, you're, you're a name but on a piece of paper or you're or, or on the computer screen. There's no love. Um, the old, but it's also more practically, how do you help and get alongside people? Um, you know, the old Victorian notion of kind of deserving or Puritan notion of deserving and undeserving poor. A centralised system and bureaucracy can't address that. But loving your neighbour and mo- getting together and having a million points of light, um, they you can get alongside those and they really need help. And you can provide the sort of help they really need, as opposed to, in many instances, the help they definitely don't need, which may actually be counterproductive. And so that's called a tough love aspect there. But that generosity and that heart for the poor, ultimately, ultimately, that's what is going to change lives on a permanent basis. You know, the state doesn't change lives. The state doesn't very often lead people out of welfare. It leads people to dependence on it, but it doesn't lead them out of it. Whereas real love, does just that it does lead them out and it, it shows them the pathway forward and so i think that i think that's a really exciting opportunity as well for the church because i you know what i think satan smiles on the on the rise of the welfare state because some people might listening might say that sounds cruel um you know well no one welfare wasn't non-existent before the rise of the welfare state. Um, it was absolutely very, it was actually very wide, and there was far greater coverage. 
But leaving aside the, uh, that argument, the key, the key, it's just it's difficult to believe um, that Satan, actually Satan wouldn't smile because look at all those lost opportunities to witness for Jesus. If, show, if you show love to your neighbor and you help him, that person is going to be a lot more ready to listen to you when you want to tell them about Jesus because you can see love in action. You can see Christ in action in helping them and you can feel God's love towards them. But who feels God's love when they get the paycheck or the, the check through from the bureaucracy? It's just It's just not there. And so I think there's a really, really profound opportunity for the church in the 21st century. The problem, of course, is that how do you get from here to there? Because people don't have the money. When they're, when they're overtaxed, of course, they don't have as much money to give away to causes where they could witness for Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the um, this I think this is a, a crucial, an absolutely crucial point the first of all you you know you point out that uh, welfare wasn't non-existent prior to the the massive rise of the welfare state which grew sort of exponentially after world war ii um but um this is of course of course a big requirement of the biblical tithe and uh, i think if in terms of you know getting from from where we are to to where we need to be we need a we need a, a wholesale recovery of the biblical view of the tithe most modern Christians, Graham, you know, they t- tend to think of the tithe at best as sort of supporting their local church, just making sure that, you know, the staff are paid and this sort of thing. But they don't think in terms of the biblical idea of the tithe. I mean, if you add the tithes up, they sort of amount to, well, there some scholars would disagree a bit on this, but uh, but somewhere in the region of 17 or 18 percent of one's income over, um, if you, uh, you know, collated them over a period of two to three years with the poor tithe and so on and so forth um some of it was a rejoicing tithe so effectively putting money aside for holidays but essentially the tithe was there to look after the issues of health of welfare and of education and so it was fundamentally private and um if we actually uh instead of just thinking purely institutionally the churchification of our faith uh, has tended to think purely in terms of the institutional worship of the church, whereas actually in Scripture only a tenth of the tenth went for worship. Nine-tenths are there for uh, the Levitical functions of health, welfare, and an education. And I think that perhaps the place to start in some of this is um, instead of, as you say, a, a sort of faceless bureaucracy that often ends up enabling evil and idleness. I mean, how often do you hear a sermon preached on you know the apostle paul you know if a man doesn't work he shouldn't eat or if um, if uh, if a man doesn't provide for his own paul says he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel mm-hmm. if he doesn't provide for his own household yeah. and yet we tend to sponsor evil and idleness mm-hmm. uh with a sort of faceless bureaucracy and welfareism rather than thinking through what does a heart of love of generosity of service to god and neighbor really look like economically so maybe you know, when when we look at it, it looks too big right now. How do we how do we sort of move from here to there? But it's pro- probably just starting in the small ways with our own family, caring for our own parents, making sure we're caring for our children and the members of our household, and then in the life of the church, the diaconal fund and those kinds of things. Um, we can maybe circle back around in the last few moments, uh, in a moment, uh, Graham, to to some of the practical things that we could do, and you could help us with that. But on our route there. Um, can you just give us a bit of insight into, you know, this is often the last subject on the Christian's agenda, mm-hmm. economics. It just there's, there's just sort of this wholesale acceptance of the status quo in general. And then even amongst those who tend to think more worldviewishly that are trying to grapple with worldview issues, economics um, seems to be at the bottom of the list for, for most people. Um, why do we ignore it as Christians, Graham? Why are we so blind to this issue? Why is it at the bottom of the agenda? Why is it so important that we actually get a handle on this and get a handle on it now? Um, well, I, th- I think one of the reasons Christians kind of ignore it is, we touched on it at the beginning, is that they kind of don't think that the Bible speaks to it, or if it does, it speaks to an economy, you know, 4,000 years ago. Um, and it doesn't speak 
to today, which as we discussed, we think is clearly wrong. But that 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 view has settled into to minds. Um, I, I think certainly on the UK side of the pond, as opposed to the American side, there's another factor. And I, I certainly see it in the church, um, I see it in my own church, um, uh, a kind of fluffiness about it, which is that um, and it, G, Jesus is love. Jesus was all about love. So we've got to show love to everybody. So love means means spending lots on welfare. So Christian Christian economic, economic model means big welfare state, and um, that's not the most ri- rigorous intellectual logical route. Um, but I think it's definitely the the one people have taken, and um, it's um, it's so that I call that fluffiness. It's like it's a kind of cuddly Christianity, which um, and um, and uh, for example. Um, um, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, in the, the, the uh, general election when Jeremy Corbyn was le- the then leader of the Labour Party in the UK. I'm not meaning. I'm not. I'm not trying to be political here because um, uh, the biblical model is a plague on every political party's house. So it's not. But but Corbyn Corbyn was advocating what he called for the many, not the few. And the number of Christians I heard say that sounds so Christian. So I'm going to vote for him, and for the many, not the few. For that, does you know? That's just for for them. Have Christians forgotten that people working in the public sector have fallen as well? And so, them for the many, not the few, actually just means for the for the many in the public sector. You know, the, it's just really, really absurd. But that sort of cuddly Christianity view, I think, prevails. I don't think that that argument can be applied in North America, certainly in the United States, in the same way. But I think it still applies in some senses. Um, I think I think if it's a weakness on the U.S. I think if it's a weakness on the U.S. side, it's a sort of default. It must be the market for, for Christians when they actually can't back that up and justify it and defend it. So I think that the headline works and the headline's correct, but unless you put some substance behind that and articulate and explain why that's the case, then actually you're not really going to hold sway. Um, and that's why I think a worldview analysis is so important because it's not just the headline, it's explaining why the free market is God's market and justifying that from scripture and that and because you even if you've got the we've got the wrong headline for Christians in the UK as it were you've got the right headline in many parts of North North America not all of it um but um but really there isn't substantive analysis below that uh, in many instances and I think that's that means that it's very easy for the world who are very often against the free market to come against that. And, of course, what you see as well is non-Christians, strong advocate of the free market in North America, the free market also becomes something of an idol to them. And so that's a weakness in itself. So everybody's got – Christians and non-Christians have got to get – who are advocates of the free market have got to be able to defend it um, and and really justify it from, from an intellectual perspective, but it is all about at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. It's all about freedom, you know. Um, the, and God's laws was foundation. It was right there at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. If Adam hadn't fallen, hypothetical, I know, but the free market would have grown and grown and grown and grown, and there would have been no state there. And all all God says post fall is that okay. Um, I'm going to have to make an accommodation to my rules here, but I've not changed the physical laws of the universe and I'm not going to change the economic laws. So I'm going to have a limited state involvement for defence, law and order, but it's very much to stop things going wrong as opposed to the world of today, which is, you know, gives you rights to everything under the sun and expands the state. The biblical model is all about the role and limits of government. Modern, that's, that's justice in a biblical sense. Um, it's about it's about the limited economic model around law and order and defence, whereas today social justice mm. is is the state writ, writ large. Yeah. And we don't hear enough about this in the pulpit. So because we're not expounding these issues from the pulpit for the most part, we're not expounding God's law word with regard to economic life. Christians, as you say, 
are not aware frequently of a Christian economic model at all, and then they can't respond. Let's conclude with this, uh, Graham, as we as we wrap this up. Any practical advice, any, any tips for Christians um, who are thinking, yes, okay, I'm not an economist and, I, and I'm not in political life, so I can't influence or I can have only a minimal influence on economic policy through, through my vote and so on. What can we do uh, in our own lives practically to be advancing in our own use of money, in our own thinking about money, in our, in our own uh, financial activities to be advancing a Christian economic worldview? And just sort of one minute, two minutes, um, and any any final thoughts, any tips that you can give to us uh, for thinking about what does it mean to pursue a Christian economic model with our own finances? Well, it, 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 it's hard. It's hard because if the state is taking a big chunk of your income and your tithing and giving on top, um, then, you know, in, in the modern world, the, the Finding that little bit extra to do to make a difference yourself and to show the power of voluntary welfare is going to be difficult. But I would suggest that you know group together, find like-minded Christians, and actually try and implement a biblical model. Try and try and take take over. So instead of the state crowding you out, start trying to crowd out the state yourself. But that needs Christians getting together and working together to do that to exemplify their their own model of of welfare, as it were, and how that can help people. I would also say support organizations which are lobbying and advocating this sort of worldview because they need help and they need all the help they can get because it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And the resources on the other side, boy, are they immense. And um, because you're fighting immense secular resources and just fighting us, remember, you're fighting a spiritual battle as well. And so I think that leads to the most important one as well. Guys, pray about it. Really pray about it. Set aside time. Pray that thy will be done. God God tells us to pray for our leaders and for government. So let's do it. Let's take him at his word and pray that when we pray about leaders and government, we pray about the leaders and government that he wants. Yes. And all I would add to that mm-hmm. is um, maybe think through, you know, minimizing our debt. Uh, as quickly as possible, short-term debts, um, and uh, so that we can try and be the head and not the tail. And it's better to be the creditor than the, the, than, the than the borrower. Um, and I think that's encouraged in Scripture too. Graham, those are very helpful insights and points to to finish us off there. Mm-hmm. We're looking forward to having you in May uh, at Mission of God. We'd encourage uh, everybody to. Um, Sign up and uh, come to this. It's going to be a, a unique conference, a very unique uh, messaging from our from our speaking team. Um, and uh, uh, Nathan, do you have anything mm-hmm. to add before I close this out to, well, as a I, reminder? <clears throat> Not as a reminder, just throughout the whole conversation, I keep coming back to a quote I remember from your book, Ruler of Kings, Joe, and it's utopian schemes must always be dystopian in their outcomes. And I'm just thankful to Graham for mm-hmm. pointing out uh, that that's, that's where we are right now, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So sign up for the conference. Let's, uh, let's not descend into dystopia, but let's mm-hmm. move towards the kingdom of God. Graham, thank you very, very much for joining us. We know you're a busy man and uh, you budgeted some time. There's an economic aspect to doing an interview. We know that because mm-hmm. you have to budget time for it. So that's why we talk about budgeting our time. So... <laughs> Uh, uh, we we deeply appreciate your insights and input. We'll have you back on the show uh, soonish. Uh, this has been the podcast for cultural reformation, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. We will be with you next week. <laughs>